Hello, everyone. I'm Priest Willis, and this is Missions and Marketplace Podcast, episode number 67. Today, I'm joined with Paul Downs, who started making custom furniture in 1986, shortly after graduating from the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in engineering. He since grew that custom business furniture to over $3.5 million a year, but it hasn't been easy. His clients range from individuals and small businesses to Fortune 500 companies. And along the way, a few years ago, he authored a book called Boss Life, Surviving My Own Small Business, which begins every chapter with a monthly financial update from his customer furniture business during a tumultuous year in 2012. It provides a very real, raw look at the business and testifies to the transparency and honesty of his story, which includes airing his shortcomings as he reveals the challenges of running a small business. Down says he hopes other small business leaders can draw lessons from his experience and feel less isolated. It doesn't matter if you went to business school or not. This book is a must read. Being an entrepreneur today seems sexy with Shark Tank and all this other stuff out there. But this interview cuts to the meat and potatoes of what it means to be an entrepreneur and starting a business. So without further ado, here is my man, Paul Downs. Hey, Paul, welcome to the show. Thanks, Priest. Nice to be here. Yeah, happy to have you. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? I'm 55 years old, and I've been running my own business for 31 years now. I started right out of college. I had graduated from the University of Pennsylvania with a degree in architecture and was intending on being an architect and worked construction for a summer and ended up being a carpenter's helper for a guy who was always going on about how great it would be to make furniture for a living. And he made it sound so good that I was like, shoot, I want to try doing that. (laughs) And I didn't really have anything holding me back at that point. I was young. I didn't have a family, didn't have a mortgage. And I had 5,000 bucks in the bank because my grandmother had died and left that to me. Mm. So I decided I was going to be a furniture maker. At that point, I didn't know how to make furniture or have any idea of where I would sell it. But I'm a handy guy and a persuasive person. So I started making things by looking at library books about how to do cabinetry and started making furniture. And it turned out that I was pretty good at designing and that I could talk people into giving me money. And so (laughs) that's how the business got started. And I hired my first employee in 1988. And ever since then, we've been on a path of the company getting bigger We really got a big tail when the internet came along because that allowed me to reach a much larger market with my designs and with my website than it used to be possible. And then we had one piece of very good luck back in 2003. And this is just sort of a lightning strike that put me on the path where I am today. In 1999 and and previous to that, I'd been making residential furniture, dining room tables and chairs for people in the Philadelphia area. And we had one client then who was a local architect who asked me to build a big boardroom table. So we built the table and I put a picture of it up on my first website in 1999. And then in 2003, Google started showing that picture to Everybody who searched boardroom table, it was the first search result for boardroom table, and they were showing that to everybody in the world. I had nothing to do with it. It just happened. 
And so all of a sudden people are calling me from literally all over the world asking whether I could build a boardroom table. At that time, you really didn't understand the power of search or Google. You weren't involved in buying ads from Google or anything along those lines. That was just all organic, right? That's right. It was just a decision that some robot at Google made that the thing on my website was the best representation of this particular search string. And it took a little while to get my head around it because in 2003, it was all new. You know, Google was sort of a new thing. Also, we had to figure out how to do the business. If you get a call from someone who says, can you build me this thing? What comes out of your mouth next is really important. You have to somehow make a credible response to that question that will convince someone that you can do the job. And we were fortunate that at the same time this was all happening, we started to be able to use new software that would allow us to build models of tables and show people what they were going to get. So long story short, we were able to figure out how to be a manufacturer who sold this weird product over the internet. And we've been doing that ever since. And the company has grown substantially from about a million in revs in 2003. And we're on track to about three and a half million now. And of course, we had to weather the recession and all that trouble. But we're uh, now at 21 employees and we're growing nicely. Wow, that's amazing, especially considering I've kind of looked at your background a little bit. I thought something was funny as I'm digging into your work experience in your past, you have on LinkedIn there that <laughs> that you were a French fry chef back in 1979. <laughs> that was my first job. I haven't worked for anybody since I was 23 years old. So since you came uh, out of Roy Rogers, you haven't really worked for right. anybody. And at that point, you started this business here based on some money that you got from your grandmother after she passed away and kind of just started building from there. And you were fortunate enough to be at the front end of this juggernaut that now we know as Google and mm-hmm. its algorithms and kind of bringing you up to the top in terms of your images and your products. So this is really cool stuff because also in 2010, you were fortunate enough to become a blogger and the small business columnist for New York Times, which was really big for you too, correct? That's a whole different story, but I'll tell it. I want you to tell it because it does draw some parallels in terms of how your brand is building itself out. So although it's different from what you're doing business-wise, I think the blogging and leading into this book, Boss Life here, this all kind of ties into it, at least from my perspective. So let me tell people how I got into that. The fact is the recession was very, very hard on us. In 2008, it was just devastating the collapse of the economy. And I had to downsize my company drastically. We went from 22 employees in the summer of 2008 to six people by the end of 2009. 2009, the year, the first real serious year of the recession was just really, really bad. And by the end of the year, I was actually convinced that my business was about to fail. I had less than two days worth of operating capital in the bank, and I didn't have work coming in, and I'd already laid off most of my people. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to fail. After 20-some years of being self-employed, it was not a good feeling to think that I was going to have to shut the doors. And what I started to do in December of 2009 was look for any information online about what happens when you close down a business. You can find a million stories about people who've been laid off or fired, 
But there's almost nothing about people in my position who own the business and need to shut it down and then what it's like and what do they need to do. At the same time that I was looking for this information, I had been a regular reader of the business section of the New York Times online, and they had a blog there that was aimed at business owners called You're the Boss. And the people who wrote for that were business owners and consultants and people who had advice to give to small business owners. And it was sort of the usual stuff like, you know, here's how to do marketing or here's how to hire people. And the premise always being that the writer was a well-informed, wealthy, successful person giving good advice to the rest of us. And I figured that I was going to have to shut the doors and I was going to literally have nothing to do in the next month. Like I would wake up and I'd be in my pajamas and I'd have no place to go, (laughs) nothing to do. What were you prepared to do? Did you have a plan B? No, the economy was terrible. But even besides that, I'm not naturally a gregarious person who went out and networked and had a million people to call for jobs. So I was like, shoot, I'm just going to have nothing to do and I can have no job. And I won't even know who to call to go get one. I wouldn't even know how to describe what I know how to do anyway. But I would look for information, hadn't found it. And I thought, okay, why don't I just keep a record of what happens and maybe it'll be of some benefit to someone. So I wrote an email to the editor of this blog on the New York Times. And I said, hey, I like your blog. I've been reading it for a year. You know, it's been, it had been out for about a year at that point. And I like your writers, but you don't have anybody who's a failure. And I think that there's a lot of companies that fail. And it would be interesting to be able to read about what happens when you go out of business. And I'm about to go out of business. So I'm volunteering to write for you about that. And so I sent this email off on uh, just before Christmas in 2009, and I didn't hear anything from them. But by hook and by crook, we actually just got enough work in New Year's Day to keep going through and into the next few weeks and just barely kept my nose above water so that the business didn't actually fail. But then in, to my surprise, in February of 2010, I heard back from the editor he wrote me back and he said, wow, you know, I usually don't even look at my email, but somehow this one caught my eye and nobody's ever offered to write anything like this. I don't know anybody who has done it and I don't know anybody who wants to do it, but here you are. So, you know, what would you write about? What's happening? And so I told him all the different things that I'd gone through running the business, laying off people and fighting about money with my partner and being grouchy when I went home with my wife, you know, and all the stuff that almost every boss goes through and said, these are the things I deal with. So long story short, he asked me to submit a writing sample. He said, if you're a good writer, you're hired. And turned out I am a good writer and I was hired. So that's how I got into blogging. When the offer was made, I had to sort of think about, okay, now I'm on, I've got a slot in the New York Times. They want me to write about my business. What am I going to write? And I did not want to write PR. I didn't want to write about how wonderful our company was or a craftsmanship or anything, because first of all, if I see writing like that, it's not interesting to me. Yeah. And second of all, who needs that shit? It's, it's a, uh, sorry. I'm no, not, no, that's fine. Can I swear here? <laughs> yes, you yeah. can. You can, you can cuss as much as you want. Okay. So I wanted to write something that was honest. And so I started writing instead of good advice for other people, I would write about things that I didn't know how to do. And, problems I was having and 
the issues that come up when you're running a small business. And it turned out to be a huge success that there were a large number of people who really identified with my struggles because they're going through versions of the same thing. And so I ended up writing for the Times for four years. Now, they eventually shut the blog down at the end of, I think it was 2014. But I wrote 179 columns and wow. you know about two books worth writing for the Times. And that was really interesting because writing online, you get the chance to see what the commenters have to think about your writing. So it was more like a dialogue with this large audience of business owners. It was really, really instructive for me. And I think it was instructive for others, too. And out of that came the opportunity to do the book. Do you mind if I tell that story? One thing I do want to bring up is we found out absolutely that you're a great writer. In this book, I knew I was in for something special when in the introduction you said, I hope I don't offend anybody. And I just kind of rubbed my hands together and said, oh, boy, this is about to get good. (laughs) And one of the key things about it was that I totally resonated with this as an entrepreneur because you're absolutely right. In people's writing style today, even on Inc. Magazine or whether they're writing for Forbes or some other article, there's a pitch somewhere. You feel a jab, jab, punch coming somewhere, whereas in your book, you're literally transparent about, hey, this is what my finances are. This is what I'm dealing with. And make no mistake about it for those that are listening. It says Paul Downs, cabinet makers. But in this book, he actually outlines his business in terms of him making conference tables. He has images in there. He talks about the business as a whole. So, Paul, let's get into the book a little bit. After New York Times, as you start writing, you take that same writing style and maybe in some respect, a lot of points from the articles. And that kind of heads you towards the book, correct? Well, yes and no. I didn't sit down and write a book. What happened was, well, I did. But what happened first was I was approached by an agent a literary agent in New York who said, do you want to write a book? And that was good because what it meant to me was that I didn't have to write the book and then run around and shop it and see whether anybody would publish it. I had an agent already, a very reputable one, who would find a market for it. Then all I had to do was write the book. The way books get written is you write a couple of chapters and then your agent takes it around and see if anybody wants to publish it. At least that's how this happened. So it was a little bit less of a roll of the dice than a lot of writers. Having been offered the opportunity to write a book and publish it, I decided, what am I going to write about? And the temptation is to just take all the columns from the Times and sort of reword them a little bit and put them in a book, and here's my advice. But one thing about writing for the Times as opposed to my real life is that when you're writing for a blog, it's like writing for sitcoms. There's always a little lesson in every single one. And so you have to kind of isolate, oh, this was my cash flow issue or this was my employee issue. And you write about it and then it goes in the paper and then people respond. And that's nice, but that is not at all what the actual life of a business owner or an entrepreneur is. And I was more interested in the book in trying to draw a portrait of what it's like to be me. Because I've read a lot of business books, and what interests me is other people's businesses and sort of the totality of it. But there are very, very few business books which really give you that. Usually it's just, as I said, advice about a particular kind of thing, as opposed to, hey, this is how my business works and here's the money. And I'm always curious about that. So I decided that I would write the book that I wanted to read. 
And I structured it as a journey through a whole year in my business and the various issues that come up. Because the fact is, as a business owner, you never really know what your day is going to be like. I had one of those mornings this morning when I had a list of things that I thought I was going to do. And by 30 minutes in, it had all been derailed. We had an employee with a slight injury that I needed to deal with. And then another employee came in and complained about something. Mm. It's always going off the rails. And you always also have to be worrying about whether you have money to keep going. So even at three and a half million right now, Paul, is that still an ongoing concern for you? Yeah, because if three and a half million is going in, 3.4 million is going out. True. That's one of the realities of running manufacturing and a business with employees is that just because money's coming in doesn't mean you get to keep it forever. You have to spend it on all kinds of things. Are you open to share what kind of margins a business like yours has? I can tell you, I mean, first of all, let me preface it by saying that this is a manufacturing business. It's not like software where you can write it once and then make a trillion copies. Every table we make, we have to design it and build it, and it's one at a time. So in manufacturing businesses like mine, if there's a profit margin of about 10%, you're doing well. Now, I have many talents, but I would not claim to be a great businessman. I'm not great at making money. So my business tends to run on about a 1% to 2% margin if it makes money at all. The most money I personally have ever made in a year is about a quarter million bucks, and the least money is losing $70,000. So I'm always happy to share numbers with anybody, mostly because I think it doesn't get talked about. I agree. And I think the fear, though, Paul, is it's so refreshing to read your book and talk to you. I promise you, you're one of my most anticipated guests because of this reason. Your book was phenomenal. Now, I'd love to talk that talk, but some people are afraid of what the competition might do with that. That's the only reason why I think people are hesitant to do it. But you doing it and other people that listen to you that aren't competitors love it. But if they were competitors, doesn't it get weird? Not for me. We're in such a niche that there's a relatively small number of competitors. Honestly, I don't care that much what they do or think. It's enough struggle for me to run the business the way I want to do it. Maybe that's weird, but that's just how I am. I I don't care if someone knows that particular thing about me. Because part of it is that we make a physical product, and the process of making it and the thing itself are just two different things. Mm -hmm. Like if I deliver my table to my client, it's in their office from there on out. They get to look at it, touch it, and it's good. We do a good job. And whether I had a good day or a bad day making it, it's irrelevant to them. So, you know, they get to enjoy the thing itself. I get to experience the experience of making it. And it doesn't bother me to talk about whether it was difficult or hard, because I know at the end of the day, I've delivered a good product. You were talking about in terms of your business and how you approach it in general, you may not be that good at money, but and you probably don't even consider yourself much a businessman. But you are focused on making a good product and pleasing the customer and trying your best to be upfront with your employees. This is going to sound like a dumb question when I say, why is this important to you? Because I know why it should be important. But how do you think that's improved your business sense? And how do you think that's improved your business overall? Well, I don't know whether it has. Depends on how you measure it. So there's two ways to think about business. Business is the performance of something 
for payment. And it's pretty easy to measure money in any context. There it is. There's the bank balance. It's $100 or $1,000. There's a lot of emphasis in our culture measuring things and putting dollar amounts on them. By that standard, my business is not as good as a lot of other people. I mean, there's people who are good at making money. And what's important to me is not necessarily wringing every last penny out of my clients and my employees. But what I want to do personally to make myself happy is to create a kind of tribe for my employees that we can all be part of, that is a good place to work. It's a good atmosphere. We hire smart people. We treat each other well. And then this tribe gets the opportunity to make good things for our clients. What's important to me is that I get to live my life in a way that, that's satisfactory and doesn't harm anybody and provides an opportunity for the people who are in my tribe to live the same way. You know, we want to make enough money to be solid middle-class citizens. It's not important to me to be a billionaire or to always be making more money. I just think that if you look around you at the world and the whole range of human experience, I'm an incredibly fortunate guy. Getting another dollar is not important to me because I'm already blessed. Mm -hmm. But what is, is trying to bring others along on that journey and then also trying to do work that is good for the people who trust us to do it. And I've been in enough deliveries where I saw a client put their eyes on one of our tables for the first time. They never saw it before. And they're just delighted that we fulfilled the promise. If I can arrange it so that my life consists of that and that I can bring others into that experience, then I'm doing okay. And whether I make more money or less money, that doesn't move me so much. I just want to have enough money so we can continue doing it. That's really good. And that kind of leads me into my next question. So the book itself is called Boss Life, Surviving My Own Small Business. And the cover of it has a very short pencil, broken pencil, teeth marks on a pencil, twisted pencil. That in itself, without saying another word, describes boss life. The nervousness of being a boss, the, the anger within being a boss, meaning cracking a pencil, the, the twistiness and the anxiety of being a boss. You know, I want to ask this as a two-part question. So what does boss life mean to you? And then secondly, even today, Paul, how do you handle anxiety, both on a business level and a personal level? Well, let's start with the answer to the first. So the boss in the organization has a lot of power, but also has a lot of responsibility. And I think that that's not always apparent to the people who work in the organization. And the reason is that one of the main functions of the boss is to act as a kind of shock absorber between all of the things that, that could happen to the people in the company and what actually passes through and sort of what happens. And what I mean by that is that in my role, and I'm in a 20-person company, so I'm still doing a lot of this myself. I'm the HR guy, and I'm the strategic guy, and I handle the money, and I worry about legal issues, and I make sure that our electricity bill is paid. It's like 10 million things, all that adult stuff that in people's personal lives, it's just a chore. Well, there's like 10 times as much of it when you're running a business. The exercise of power of being able to give people orders is really a double-edged sword. Now, depending on how the boss is wired, they may delight in the exercise of power or they may shrink from the exercise of power. 
but you can't get around that you have to do that, that the decisions you make have real impact on the people who work for you. And that can be very trying too. If you have people you need to get rid of, or if you have people you want to hire, or you're trying to make payroll, all my decisions have big impact on the people who work for me. And you handle anxiety, there's two aspects to it. One is if you've been running a business for years, you sort of get used to it. You have a sense of what is the ordinary scale of trouble and hopefully you get used to at least handling that. And then there's times when you're in extreme trouble and you sort of realize, okay, I've got to sprint here and catch up with this. But it's a process of toughening that goes on over the course of years. I've never arrived yet at the point where it's like, hmm, you know, it's just easy now. It just has not happened to me. <laughs> right. The responsibility grows with the organization. Now, one other thing, though, is that as organizations get bigger, you get more help from your people that you can afford to hire that HR person and you can rely on your people to do a good job of whatever you hire them to do. So there's more help as you go along too. That helps me deal with it. I would say also that I'm very interested in maintaining some kind of balance outside of life that I find that physical activity is really helpful for me. I like to exercise. I often ride my bike to work just to burn some calories and it's uh, meditative. I do things that aren't work at home. And I try to read books and listen to music and just not work. I don't work 90 hours a week. I just can't do that. I try to work about 50 hours a week. But the first 40 hours are in the office and the other 10 hours are spread out over all the other hours. So I may think about work 50 times an hour for 30 seconds each or, you know, it's like you never leave it, but you have to be able to stop on occasion too. 800 CEO Reed considered this book at one point one of the best books of the year. I think that was back in 2015 or 16, somewhere mm -hmm. thereabouts. And one of the letters that they put out that you put out to the booksellers was that you stated from Ebenezer Scrooge to Mr. Burns on Simpson, bosses are portrayed as evil, vindictive, and relentless in their pursuit of power. It's much harder to find a sympathetic portrayal of real boss someone who cares about his workers and tries to promote his employees' well-being on his own, that's you, you being you, Paul, and that's the boss life. And I think that is absolutely true. The question that I want to ask here is, and, and I don't know how familiar you are with the pulse of Silicon Valley and what's happening with Uber and places like that, but do you think that being in touch with the workers, do you think that's where the disconnect is at with the leadership? Now, I'm not asking you to speak for them because I know you're not on the board of Uber, but just from your take as a CEO and a business owner who is in seven figures and larger, what do you think is missing there? My son, who I write briefly about in the book, is deep into that dot-com world. Mm -hmm. And uh, my observation is that there's a fountain of money happening out there. And there's so much money flying around that it's distorting almost everything about those businesses. And it's a lottery economy out there. There's thousands of startups and a few of them hit it huge. And what tends to happen is whoever stumbles onto that fountain of cash, they're given wide latitude to do what they do as long as the money keeps coming. And so the Uber guy or Steve Jobs 
there's sort of the asshole style boss who happened to have found a way to make a billion dollars. And there's other people who have found ways to make a billion dollars. And if you've got a billion dollars, people are going to let you do what you're doing. Then it becomes, what is that person like? And they're going to be given all the rope they need to hang themselves. And if they're someone whose tendencies are you know, difficult, they're going to get a chance to put that on display. And I think that's what's happening, frankly, is that if you've got big success money-wise, no one's going to tell you no until you've gone too far. I think it's amazing, actually, that more of those founders aren't in those positions, that it's kind of a testament to the fact that most people do have some kind of internal moral compass and uh, can actually survive that journey to wealth without becoming monsters. But some people clearly can't. What's the lesson there? A lot of it is just luck. Who succeeded? Why? Was it because of them or some other set of factors? It's really hard to say. In my experience, the most of the business owners I know who are not at all on that road are more like me. They recognize that their success really requires that they bring their employees along with them. The idea that you can suck the blood out of the people who work for you and be a tyrant and have a successful life, I just haven't seen many examples of that. I mean, there are a lot of bad bosses on this earth, but the people who work for them are just tolerating them, and it's just not a situation I would want to be in. I think one other thing that's, uh, that should be considered is that these days there's so much more information about how to run a company well and what you might do, what techniques you might do, than there used to be. When I started my company, I was actually looking for information about how to be a good boss, and there really was just really, really hard to find it. And nowadays, if you want business advice, it's everywhere. So hopefully that means that most companies these days are just being run better than on the average before because best practices and sort of ways of thinking about how to be a boss, there's just much better ideas floating around today than there were 25, 30 years ago. We like to thank today's sponsor, TubeBuddy. TubeBuddy is the premier YouTube channel management and video optimization toolkit. YouTube creators will find their new best friend in TubeBuddy. Their browser extension adds a layer of amazing functionality right on the top of YouTube's website. You can perform bulk updates to your videos, such as adding annotations or cards to all your videos with just a few clicks. You can perform, find, replace on your videos, just as you were using a word processor. You can generate professional custom thumbnails using screen prints and branding text layers. You can engage with your audience quicker and more efficiently. You can export your list of subscribers and their social profiles. You can get detailed analysis of competitor channels. You can promote your new upload across other videos. The list just goes on and on. Today's sponsor is TubeBuddy. Go into the podcast notes page and click on TubeBuddy and get it today. You know, just a few other questions before I let you go. One being, you know, in that same letter that I just read from a couple seconds ago, you said you running your own company for the past 29, probably 30 years now, most of the time you've been closer to failure than prosperity. Number one, is that true today? The reason why I'm asking this is because 
along with getting so much information out there, people glamorize the idea of being an entrepreneur. You watch Shark Tank and all these shows and you're like, my God, I could just do something and be a millionaire. And in some respects, that's true. But you and I both know it takes a lot more work than that. And there's a lot more put behind it than just that. You are the most transparent, aside from my mentors, Jalem Getz and other people business-wise. Do you really feel like you're closer to failure than prosperity today as a business owner? No, but I could see failure. <laughs> Not that far from it. <laughs> right. Five years have passed since I wrote that book. And uh, I would say I've made more progress as a boss in those five years than I did in the previous 25. Okay. And... Am I close to failure? Well, for what it's worth, I have a net worth of about $1.4 million. And of that, about 900000 of it is the value of the business. Now, the business itself could be gone in three months quite easily if I made all the wrong decisions and we didn't make a single sale. You know, it, we'd be gone pretty quickly because that's how much cash we have. So to that extent, yeah, we're always close to failure, but I've learned by sharing these kinds of having these kinds of conversations with hundreds of business owners that that is not at all unusual. That most businesses, most small businesses are as close to failure as success on any given day because it's all about how much cash you have. And there aren't that many businesses that just produce gigantic amounts of cash. It's just not the nature of most businesses. So I could still make some wrong choices and be gone really fast, or I can continue to exercise my street smarts and all the tactics I've developed over the years and be here for another 30. And I don't think in either of those scenarios, it would be that much different in terms of there'd never be a moment when it's inevitably one thing or the other. I'm always on the middle of this teeter-totter that could go to failure or could go to success. And we're just balancing that and trying to keep the doors open for another day, week, month, year. What do you see, Paul, as the legacy of your business, your life? You mentioned your net worth, but I'm sure there's something much more valuable than dollars that drives you every day. At the end of your race, and I don't know if you plan on retiring at some point or you're going to ride this thing till the wheels fall off. What are you going for? What is your pursuit of happiness? Well, that's a difficult question. I think that one of the things that's sort of weird about the business I'm in is that we're making artifacts. And there's certainly the potential for the things that I make to be the longest lasting of all the stuff I do. Like we make chairs and tables. And as long as nobody lights them on fire or puts them in a dumpster, <laughs> they could be here 3,000 years from now. Yeah. There's furniture from King Tut's tomb that I personally put my hand on that's that old. So wow. that's one thing is that we are building stuff that should last forever. Okay. Is that a legacy? It is and it isn't. It's just like it's what we do. I don't really think about that as being, oh, that's what I want to send into the future. Anybody who's got a family is sending something into the future. And I'm very proud of my children and I love my wife. And I think that that's something that motivates me to do what I do. And I'm confident that they will carry my name for it in a reputable way. I think that there's some potential for Boss Life, the book, and the things I wrote in the Times to be a legacy and to make a journey that, you know, I don't know where it's going to end, but it's a record 
of a way of what was it like to be a businessman in, in 2010, and there will be value to that story. There is value now, and there will be value to the future. So I've got all these opportunities. You know, I've been blessed with a lot of opportunities to send a message into the future, and I don't really focus on one of them. I just like, these are all the things I do, and if something comes out of it 100 years from now, you know, good on me. But it's all, a lot of it's been luck, honestly, the opportunity to do these things. One of the reasons why I started this podcast was because I wanted to meet people like yourself. Your book is easily one of the top three books that I've read this year personally. So it certainly left something with me. I mean, you know, again, I can dive into the details, but I really implore people to purchase this book. Go to Amazon. There'll be a link on the page for you to get it. But if you're running a business, you're considering starting a business. I'm telling you guys, this is the most transparent book that I've ever read. And get past the numbers. I'm just talking about the day-to-day, not only working on a business, but working in the business as an entrepreneur that kind of brings some reality to the shine that we've been seeing in recent history about being entrepreneurs, which I thoroughly appreciate. So and the reason why I started this podcast, just going back to that, was so that I could talk to people like yourself who could almost instill that into me. So I created this platform almost selfishly. You know, I just thank you for having somebody like you on. So Paul, look, feel free at this time. If people want to get in touch with you, I don't care if they want a conference center or a conference table that is, or they just want to talk about something that you're interested in. Feel free to share how they can get in touch with you. Feel free to share your website, anything you'd like to reach out. Okay, well, if people want to see the work we do, then they can go to pauldowns.com. That's P-A-U-L-D-O-W-N-S.com. If they want to get in touch with me about the book, you could send an email through the website. Or if you buy the book, I have another email at the back of the book. That's paul.c.downs at gmail.com. And you can look up my number on the website and give me a call, too. I really enjoy talking to book readers or business owners, people who reach out to me. I've talked to maybe three or four hundred different people from all around the world since the book came out. You know, I'm not too busy to take a call and there's no secretary to chase you away or anything. So if you have some thoughts to contribute, I love to, t- to talk to people and uh, or to respond to an email. So feel free to get in touch. Paul, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Priest. Uh, This has been a good conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. The next episode of Missions and Marketplace podcast drops on Sunday, drops every Sunday. If you like what we're doing, leave us a rating, a review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It's a great way to help others find out about the show. I got love for you, and I know you have it for me. Help me raise the bar even higher. For more information about the show, follow me on Twitter at the handle P. Willis Sr. Until next Sunday, keep dreaming, keep pushing, and I'll do the same, and I'll talk to you soon. I'm the best ever. My style is impetuous. My defense is impregnable, and I'm just ferocious. (laughs) 